Welcome to the Primary Ride Home for Wednesday, May 22nd, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins. Today, a new poll shows who registered voters like the most and the least. Seven primary candidates want a climate-focused debate. Booker proposes a White House Office of Reproductive Freedom. And a summary of O'Rourke's CNN Town Hall. Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. Yesterday, Quinnipiac University released its latest national poll results, and the biggest headline was all about New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio, the candidate who just announced his run late last week. We'll get back to that. So before we get to the results, I have to mention a few things about how favorability polls work. First off, let's get at the precise question that was asked of each person. I'm going to use Joe Biden as an example here because he was the first candidate after Trump that the poll asked about. Quote, is your opinion of Joe Biden favorable, unfavorable, or haven't you heard enough about him? End quote. So the voters have three listed options, favorable, unfavorable, or haven't heard enough, and then a fourth option that is not explicitly mentioned, which is just to refuse to answer. The other thing to know about this poll is that it has a margin of error of plus or minus 3.7 percentage points, it only included registered voters, and it was conducted via phone, including cell phones, in proportion with the landline versus cell phone ownership of Americans. Okay, so with all that out of the way, what did voters think? Well, let me read from Quinnipiac's top-line explainer. Quote, with a 49-39% to favorability rating, former Vice President Joseph Biden is the only presidential contender, Democrat or Republican, with a clear positive score. End quote. Huh? Okay, well, let me explain that for a moment. When Quinnipiac says Biden has a 49-39% to favorability rating, what that means is that the total set of respondents, all the people, the Republicans, Democrats, Independents, everybody, out of that total, 49% said they had a favorable opinion of Biden. And 39% had an unfavorable opinion. If you dig into the data, 11% haven't heard enough about him, and 2% refused to answer. Now, if you've been doing the math, yeah, that adds up to 101%, but that's because the pollsters are rounding their numbers to the nearest whole digit. Now, there is a better way to deal with this on a podcast. A simpler way to express these same numbers is to give what's called a net favorability rating. What that is, is you just subtract the second number from the first number. That's a whole lot easier to talk about on this show. So, I'm going to stick with that from here on out. For Biden, that net rating is plus 10. That was 49 to 39. Okay, subtract it, you get plus 10. Given the margin of error of almost 4%, that is pretty good news for Biden. Not amazing news, but pretty good. Okay, so let's run through the candidates using net favorability. Remember, this is everybody, not just Democrats, responding. So think of these numbers in terms of the actual 2020 presidential contest not the primary. All right, Biden plus 10, Harris minus 3, Sanders minus 7, Booker minus 8, Warren minus 9, O'Rourke minus 12, and de Blasio minus 37. Yeah, so you might have noticed that last one kind of sticks out. De Blasio has decent name recognition, meaning a lot of people contacted for the poll actually knew who he was and they had an opinion. The bad news for him is what that opinion was. 
But this points out some other key factors. Reading from Quinnipiac again, quote, For the other Democratic contenders, the score for those who haven't heard enough about them to form an opinion ranges from 56% to 88%. End quote. Again, to kind of translate that, aside from the list I read just now, the poll did ask about a bunch of other Democratic candidates, but the majority of respondents, more than half, didn't have an opinion or hadn't heard of them. One example is Kirsten Gillibrand, who had a net rating of minus nine, but that isn't very meaningful because 56% of people surveyed had no opinion. So in the list I just read, I'm only including candidates where more than half of respondents actually expressed an opinion. Some people read this poll and said, hey, look, Pete Buttigieg gets a plus four favorable rating. But I read this poll and say, hey, look, 57% of people have no opinion of Pete Buttigieg, so he can't make it onto that list right now. The margin of error and the margin of people who don't have opinions makes it so we can't make conclusions on much of this data. All of this stuff gets at the problems with polling in general, but also the problems with early polling. At this point in the race, lots of regular people, say people who don't listen to this podcast, have not heard of Klobuchar or Gillibrand or Castro or Inslee. I could go on, but you know what I mean. And even when they have heard of a candidate, some of the lesser known ones, for instance, O'Rourke, register 46% of respondents saying they don't have an opinion. So, Yeah, technically we give him a net minus 12 rating, that's technically true, but it also means he, like most candidates in this field, has the potential to reach a huge group of people who don't have an opinion of him yet. Alright, so let me give you my takeaways from this poll regarding popularity. Biden, overall, is more popular than he is unpopular, and most people have heard of him. Sanders is less popular but everybody has heard of him. Warren is less popular still, but 25% of respondents haven't heard of her. And de Blasio is really unpopular, but nearly half of voters haven't heard of him either, so he could move that needle somewhat. Beyond that, the uncertainty is overwhelming. Go read the poll and see for yourself, especially if you have a favorite candidate and you want to dig through the numbers to see how they're doing. The poll does break down results by party. So, for instance, you could go look at how a specific candidate is doing within the group of registered Democratic voters. There's a link to the full results in the show notes. It is the Quinnipiac poll. Back in April, Jay Inslee wrote an open letter to his fellow candidates asking for one of the Democratic primary debates to focus exclusively on how to address climate change. A group called U.S. Youth Climate Strike has been organizing around the same issue, along with MoveOn.org. And they're not doing it just because of Inslee, though in some ways he did get the primary ball rolling. So the news here is that earlier this week, Elizabeth Warren joined in calling for that climate-focused debate. In a tweet, she wrote, quote, During selfie lines, people often press notes into my hands to explain why they're in this fight. Last week in Virginia, I got a note asking if I support a climate debate. Yes, we need to do everything we can to save our planet. End quote. Okay, so scrolling through the Climate Strike Twitter feed, other candidates offered full support for such a debate weeks ago and often on camera. Here's the complete list that I could find as of press time. I will update this tomorrow if I get a response from the Climate Strike press team and I missed somebody. All right, here is the list of people who gave a strong yes. 
Julian Castro, Mike Gravel, Jay Inslee, Tim Ryan, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and Andrew Yang. Okay, dropping in here with a quick last-minute addition, Kirsten Gillibrand should also be on that list. Thank you to the Climate Strike folks for getting back to me right away over email. There is also kind of a half-answer from O'Rourke saying he would attend such a debate, but not explicitly calling for one. Now, all of this comes in the context of the many DNC-sponsored debates we expect to see this primary season. The DNC expects to hold a total of 12 primary debates. Six of those are in 2019, and another six in 2020. So the notion of just one out of those 12 being devoted to this one issue just might work. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Senator Cory Booker wrote a post on Medium this morning titled, How I Will Take Immediate Action to Protect Reproductive Rights as President. It's a short read and in it he gets right to the point. Booker accuses Republicans across the country of organizing to limit access to abortion and ultimately overturn the Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision. He writes at the top several key things he believes need to be done to address this. And then he writes, quote, But here's the thing. We can't wait for Congress. End quote. As we've discussed on this show, if the country ends up with a Democrat in the White House after the next election, there is no guarantee that Congress will also be controlled by Democrats. So acknowledging what a candidate can do solely via executive order has become a practical part of certain policy proposals. Okay, reading again from Booker's piece, quote, Beginning on day one, here's what I will do to advance reproductive rights. Create a White House Office of Reproductive Freedom. For more than two years under the Trump administration, we have seen the impact of a relentless and coordinated attack on women. On day one, I will create a White House Office of Reproductive Freedom charged with coordinating and affirmatively advancing abortion rights and access to reproductive health care across my administration, addressing all barriers to full reproductive autonomy, such as access to health care, including maternal and infant health, quality affordable child care, and comprehensive paid family leave, end quote. He then goes on to detail a series of other specific proposals, many of which would require participation from Congress, and I'm going to summarize the long list of promises Booker makes here. One, end the domestic gag rule, which, quote, prohibits women's health care providers from discussing with low-income patients how and where to access a safe legal abortion, end quote. Two, 
guarantee access to contraception without copays under the Affordable Care Act. 3. Repeal the Hyde Amendment, which prohibits the use of federal funds to pay for abortion in most cases. 4. Undo various Trump administration rules that restrict access to health care. 5. Reform the Teen Pregnancy Prevention Program. 6. Restore funding for the United Nations Population Fund. And 7. End the global gag rule instituted by President Trump, quote, which forbids international organizations that receive federal funding from even mentioning the word abortion, end quote. In addition to all this, Booker has also previously pledged only to appoint Supreme Court justices who will uphold the Roe v. Wade decision. And last up tonight, town hall time. Last night, Beto O'Rourke went on CNN to participate in a town hall. It was held at Drake University in Des Moines, Iowa, in a large auditorium. Moderator Dana Bash ran the event, and this is actually the second time that Bash has moderated a CNN town hall featuring O'Rourke. He appeared last year while running for Senate in Texas. Now, we'll get to a few substantive moments shortly, I just wanted to include this opening bit where Bash immediately went to a key topic I talked about last week. This is literally the first question and answer of the night coming just one minute into the event. Listen in. Um, so nice haircut. Thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I say that because we all saw the, the live stream on Facebook of yeah. you getting your haircut. So if you make it to the White House, um, what else will you be live streaming? Yeah. You know, my intent is to show off my hometown of El Paso, Texas, and this extraordinary barber who produced this haircut that you're seeing right now, um, who moved over from Ciudad Juarez nine years ago at the height of some horrific violence there to start a business in my hometown, to create jobs, to contribute to our quality of life, to help tell the American story. This is a country of immigrants and asylum seekers and refugees from the world over. Nothing to be afraid of, everything to celebrate. And so that's what we were trying to do. Yeah. Now, like I said last week, I think that's an instructive answer. O'Rourke is doing multiple things here. For one, he didn't actually answer the question about what else he would live stream. Instead, he went straight for the thing he wanted to talk about. He spoke to the issue of immigration and the notion that by showing real live American immigrants doing normal stuff like cutting hair, he is actually making a political statement. Okay, from there, Bash asked some more questions, the audience asked a bunch, and there are some key moments I want to highlight. One of them dovetails with the story I just did about Cory Booker and reproductive rights. In this audio clip, I have cut off the beginning of the question just to save time. But I want you to notice how similar O'Rourke's policies are to what Booker proposes. Listen in. What specific actions will you take to allow us to gain back our right to our own bodies? For so long, women have been leading this fight, shouldering the burden of making sure that their reproductive rights are protected. It's time that all of us join them in this fight. As president, I will make sure that every nominee... to every federal bench, including the Supreme Court, understands and believes that the 1973 decision, Roe versus Wade, is the settled law of the land. As, 
As president, I'll make sure that we do away with the gag rule, which prevents providers from referring women to get the best reproductive health care that they can. We'll do away with the Hyde Amendment, so that ensures that regardless of your income or your zip code, you're able to access a safe, legal abortion. And also the other services that are provided in family planning clinics, a cervical cancer screening, family planning help. In a state like mine in Texas, where we have not expanded Medicaid, or one like yours, where you privatize Medicaid to disastrous results, being able to get the health care that will keep women alive in the midst of a maternal mortality crisis that is three times as deadly for women of color. And then I will work with our partners in Congress to make sure that by statute we prevent states from taking away the right that every woman should enjoy, making their own decisions about her own body and having access to the health care that makes that possible. Thank you, Pastor. So look at that. In the span of two minutes, O'Rourke managed to cram in promises to nominate judges to support Roe v. Wade, end the domestic gag rule, repeal the Hyde Amendment, expand access to reproductive health care, and make the Roe v. Wade decision a federal law that would prevent state bans like the one we saw in Alabama. Moments after O'Rourke said all this, his campaign emailed an official policy document on it to the media. Check the show notes for a summary of that from CNN. At Politico, David Siders cited O'Rourke's performance as a breakout moment. He wrote, quote, Beto O'Rourke has held more than 150 town halls since announcing his presidential campaign. On Tuesday, it showed. End quote. And one more clip here that stood out to me. I want to play a segment from a fairly long exchange about impeaching the president. First, listen in. Good evening. Good evening. Two arguments for starting impeachment proceedings against President Trump are, first, that impeachment would bring into the open uh, uh, information withheld by the administration, and second, that it is the duty of Congress to protect the Constitution. There seems to be a concern, however, that the move could backfire politically. What is your stance on starting impeachment proceedings against President Trump, and why? Chris, thank you for the question. We should begin impeachment proceedings against Donald Trump. Not something... Not something that I take lightly. Uh, it's, it's an incredibly serious, sober decision that we should make as a country. Really, the last resort when every other option has failed us. And at this point, where the president has refuse to respond to any subpoena, where his attorney general will not testify, where he will not furnish other witnesses so that we can find out what happened to this great democracy in 2016 and how we prevent future attacks in 2020 and beyond. A president who invited the involvement of a foreign power in this democracy in 2016 and then did everything in his power to obstruct the investigation into what has happened. If we do nothing because we are afraid of the polls, or the politics, or the repercussions in the next election, then we will have set a precedent for this country that in fact some people, because of the position of power and public trust that they hold, are above the law. And if this great democracy, 243 years into this idea and this experiment, is to survive for another 243, or even another year or two, we cannot allow that precedent to stand. There must be consequences, accountability, and justice. The only way to ensure that is to begin impeachment proceedings. Chris, thank you for asking the question. Now, this actually went on for another couple of minutes as Bash and O'Rourke discussed the political implications of impeachment. 
O'Rourke said in part, quote, if this is important to us, and I think it is, then we need to look past those short-term consequences to the consequences to the future of this country, end quote. Well, that is it for one more episode of The Primary Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter, at Chris Higgins. And now, a bee update. There are now two little bee habitats full of mason bees in the backyard. They're competing with bumblebees and honeybees to pollinate a whole bunch of California lilacs as I speak. So, I'm speaking softly because outside the window, right at this moment, there is a constant buzzing. So I'm going to go keep an eye on that, and I will talk to y'all very quietly tomorrow. 